Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. Welcome, everybody. I'm Thane Stenner of Stenner Wealth Partners of CG Wealth Management. I'm the host of the B&M Bloomberg Smart Wealth Podcast, where I get to have the opportunity to host many of Canada's top pioneers, innovators, entrepreneurs, and executives. And one of those uh, that I'm very pleased to have today is Mike Woolat. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Lane. Great to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on. And uh, I think uh, the topic of uh, private capital markets in Canada, uh, which includes venture capital and, and uh, private equity, and both in Canada and uh, actually globally, is going to be a pretty interesting topic for our listeners here today. So I will go through a brief uh, uh, bio of Mike, um, who I've happened to known personally and professionally for roughly five, six years. And I've been familiar, very familiar with Hamilton Lane uh, over the last six, seven years from my time at Morgan Stanley in California and now here at CG Wealth. So a little bit about Mike. Uh, Mike Willat is the Managing Director and Head of Canada for Hamilton Lane which is a global organization um, that he's heading up the Canadian uh, uh, subsidiary of. Prior to joining Hamilton Lane in 2019, Mike was a director of Omer's pension plan in the venture capital and growth equity groups. Prior to that, uh, Mike was the CEO of the Canadian Venture Capital and Private Equity Association, which basically represents the stakeholders and constituents of the VC and PE groups here in Canada. So he's very plugged in. Uh, very networked, and uh, again, will be, I think, quite insightful for everybody today. He's also co-founded a management consulting firm and has held senior executive roles at a few major Canadian companies. So prior to getting into the private sector, Mike also worked with the government of Canada, first as a research economist, and then as a political and policy advisor to the Minister of Finance. So a very senior uh, consultative role, uh, would have given, which would have given him some very good insights as to what was going on on the Canadian landscape and global landscape. Uh, he's also worked overseas as an economist on World Bank-funded international development projects, and he's even taught economics at the university level. Mike is a frequent commentator on both broadcast and print media on the state of the Canadian private capital markets. I'm very pleased to have him here today. And lastly, uh, he holds a master's in economics from the University of British Columbia, our neck of the woods here in Vancouver, but he currently resides in, in Toronto. Uh, Mike, how long have you lived in Toronto now? Oh, I've been here since uh, 2007, a West Coaster that moved out to Toronto thinking I'd be here a couple of years and uh, I got stuck. So, <laughs> uh, but I had a great time in Toronto. Geez, Thane, when you read that out. It's been a long road to get here. I feel like <laughs> I forgot some of those things. Thanks. For yeah, that. yeah. They, they they call it experience. They call yeah, it experience. Yeah, right? yeah. I'll, uh, you've had a you've had a varied uh, background, but I can tell you that um, you know from a lot of the people that I see in the industry, uh, you're extremely well positioned on on giving our viewers, I think, a current state of affairs on you know the the current private capital market. So. With permission from him, is it okay if we jump into the questions? Absolutely. Yeah, happy to. Happy to take this any way you want. Sounds good, Mike. So so t tell our listeners a little bit more information, for example, about Hamilton Lane's history and current market position. Let's just begin there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, you know, private markets, especially even for a lot of your clients and, and a lot on the private wealth side, uh, private markets are relatively newish in Canada. So you know, uh, it's nice to take some time to explain uh, who Hamilton Lane is. Um, I've known Hamilton Lane for a number of years, but uh, I'll tell you, when I came over from Omer's a little while ago, um, you know, there's a few, more than a few people that asked me, oh, you're moving to Hamilton. No, nothing to do with Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, Hamilton Lane, uh, been around for 30 plus years, started in 1991, really helping pension plans and endowment funds at the time access what was a pretty small private equity market, um, call it sub 100 funds. Um, about 30 years ago, there was really not a huge market there, but helping to build what was a kind of a mystified, a mystifying, uh, uh, you know, sector in this in this private equity. But um, uh, so it started there, 
they were building portfolios and monitoring and reporting on, on these portfolios. And Hamilton Lane really started to lead the charge in terms of creating what are called separate managed accounts, effectively investing in other managers all over the world on behalf of, of these pension plans. That business has grown substantially. So uh, we now work for some 800 plus pension plans, endowment funds all over the world um, and building, building their portfolios for them. Uh, Hamilton Lane is uh, Philadelphia based, but we have 21 offices around the world. Uh, we've now built the business to about 830 plus billion dollars of either assets under management or supervision. It makes us one of the largest pure private market allocators in the world. And I mean mm. that by pure private market, it's all we do. Hyper-focused mm. in what is a relatively small, I guess, but growing uh, asset class, substantially growing asset class um, in the financial markets. But uh, we literally do uh, focus on three different areas, private equity and its subcategories. So think venture capital buyout, which is a lot larger than venture capital, growth equity, uh, secondaries um, and the like, but basically private equity, private credit, and private real assets. And so we don't spend time on, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't handle questions on things like hedge funds or fixed income or public. Um, we've always been uh, you know, hyper-focused in that, in that one area. So we, we build portfolios for pension plans all over the world. About 20 years ago or so, we realized that that footprint that you know, we are one of the largest investors out there. We put out some $37 billion into other managers all over the world on behalf of our, on behalf of our um, clients around the world. That footprint gets us access to two things, gets us access to deal flow. Mm -hmm. So in the private markets, um, you know, a big driver of deal flow is co-investing, meaning if you are a big backer of a fund, they offer some of your largest investors co-investment on top of backing the fund. And so we get access to um, co-investment deals with that and also get access importantly to data. And we'll yeah. probably talk about that later, but you know, as a, I'll probably say a couple of times, there's no Bloomberg terminal for private markets. There's no, there's no place to go and find private companies and, and, you know, enter in, enter in a code and seeing what it's trading at. Yep. And so data it's private. This is the name of it. So data is key and data allows you to make better decisions and allows you to uh, act quicker in a market where um, speed and uh, certainty of capital is something that is, is key. So we have one of the largest databases in the world and some 50,000 funds. We track um, $13 trillion in fund commitments, like 130,000 plus private companies we're tracking on a cash basis out there. Um, so in the majority of the private markets we have access to because of our footprint. So all of those combined, about 20 years ago, we raised a series of commingled closed-end funds to take advantage of that deal flow in different ways. Um, co-investment equity, co-investment credit, secondaries, which we can talk about as well, and, uh, and have built that footprint. Um, and those funds, um, most of those funds are on, call it vintage, you know, six, seven, eight, depends on the, and, uh, and they, do, they do very well, and we raise them here in Canada as well. And then about four years ago or so, uh, we are started leading the charge in providing a fund that is a little bit more open-ended, which we can talk about, that provides um, high net worth, uh, family offices and the like, accredited investors, access to private markets uh, without sort of the headaches of private markets, if you will. But, uh, but with that, I'll, I'll stop um, and uh, I'm happy to continue. But yeah, Hamilton Lane is, is the largest name that very few had heard of until... <laughs> Uh, you know, we started really building a presence here uh, a few years ago and established an office here in Toronto and and uh, and um, continue to scale here, which is exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And uh, reputationally, I've, I've known the group for seven, eight years now, and uh, I've been you know very impressed with the just the leading edge and kind of the innovation, even on some of the structuring for for wealthy investors and for family offices. So you know, I could see that play out. Um, so how would you describe Hamilton Lane's investment philosophy at, the, at a high level? Yeah, um, I sort of hinted at it in the beginning. Um, our investment philosophy generally is we, have, you know, in terms of, in terms of um, from a working process standpoint, we leverage our size and scale um, substantially globally. And so we raise very diversified funds all over the world that gain access to and invest alongside top quality managers sort of globally. 
Um, so our size and scale is, is, is key. And then our hyper-focus in the private markets allow our various teams work together seamlessly. They're constantly so very collaborative type of approach. And what I mean by that is we have folks that um, you know invest. We have a huge team that invests in funds all over the world. We have a big team that does co-investment. They're constantly talking because they're, con they're all in the same sector. And so the ability to um, collaborate across the firm um, is, is sort of second to none as a result. Um, in terms of our overall philosophy of building portfolios, we focus on risk return, which where a lot of the private markets focus on. Uh, you're looking for lower volatility and higher outperformance vis-a-vis uh, -vis the publics. You will see us build diversified portfolios in our funds, particularly that provide you know, Canadians or, or others um, you know, access to a pretty diversified portfolios globally, yeah. um, which is something we're known. And then you know, in terms of a focus for groups that ask, you know, what, I, what I often get asked, what our focus is, I think we're best known in the mid-market space, small mid-market buyout space. Um, we're US-based, as I mentioned, totally global, but uh, um, where, where we spend much of our time is on the small mid-buyout while we you know, do invest in growth equity and, and, uh, and the like. Um, that's, where we, that's where we spend most of our time. And then we take, we've taken that kind of institutional approach, if you will, that we do it for 30 years and bringing it to the private wealth side um, and, and allowing access there. Uh, so, so, yeah. Yeah. So as far as track record, you know, since inception, obviously there's been various vintages, but kind of what's been the, uh, the overall average of the various pools of capital since inception? Yeah. So it, it really, it really depends. I mean, think, um, you know, it depends on if you're, you're talking about the buyout side or the, or the credit side or the real asset side, but you know, we we typically target on the on the uh, buyout side, sort of mid to high teens in terms of net returns. Is is but uh, um, that's our overall target. Um, in terms of our in terms of our evergreen fund, which is which is most applicable probably to your listeners. You know, yeah. our since our since inception uh, track record sits sits around seventeen uh, percent net returns. So right, we're sort of doing what we said it would do in in Canadian dollars um, and. Uh, and um, you know USD is sort of mid-teens, if you will, fifteen percent ish since inception. As of what is it, November thirtieth? I'm looking at I'm looking at a little, little chart here, but as of about never November thirtieth, there's always a bit of a lag in reporting, right? Of course, of course. Yeah. So, so who would you say your top two or three competitors are globally in your space? Yeah. So it depends on on the on the more retail side. These evergreen open-ended funds that we you know bring to market um, uh, and for the wealth platforms. There's a few local Canadian players, uh, groups like uh, Kensington, if you will, um, as well as uh, as well as some others, and then globally groups like Partners Group uh, and the other and and some of the others on the asset management side. Think groups like uh, Harbor Vest, uh, Northleaf here locally, yeah. um, and uh, and you know Newberger Berman, Stepstone groups that groups that build portfolios and then take access of that uh, or take advantage of that access that they that they get by building portfolios. Okay, we're just going to take a pause there and uh, we'll be right back. Thanks, everybody. Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. Welcome back, everybody. My guest today is uh, Mike Willat. And after the break, I think we're ready to kind of get into some more questions. So you joined the organization back in 2019. I shared with everybody kind of, uh, you know, a brief bio on you. So so how, how did that come about? How did you join and why did you join? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I've been the CEO at the Canadian Venture Capital Private Equity Association for years. I got to know Hamilton Lane pretty well, because a big part of my job was trying to attract large institutional quality, we call it, um, private equity to Canada, um, trying to encourage more investment in Canadian technology, buyout, whatever, um, at a time when, you know, a lot of Canadian companies were were a little more starved, I suppose, uh, for capital. So, so I got to know Hamilton Lane uh, over a number of years, really respected them like them, know the team, um, you know, just on a personal note, I can tell you, you know, Hamilton Lane 
it's it's a fantastic. It keeps winning best place to work in private equity every year after year. And a lot of a lot of what I like to say about it is it's sort of deliberately not New York <laughs> private equity. No offense to the New York uh, yeah. private equity firms. I know lots of them. They're great. They're great folks. Yeah. But it does have a sort of uh, um, you know we take our jobs very seriously, but not ourselves so serious. And uh, and it's it sort of fits with a. Maybe it's more Canadian, um, if you will, even though it's U.S., it's more of a Canadian type of approach. But, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful place to work. And, and obviously, I got to know the folks there quite well. So I was at Omer's, uh, not for too long, actually, um, working with your, uh, yeah. your previous guest, actually, John Ruffalo, um, yeah. at, at Omer's on the, on the uh, private equity side. But uh, I thought, you know, boy, really what came about was I started talking to them and I thought, man, if we can bring this sort of size, scale, sophistication on the private markets that Hamilton Lane brings, and we can bring it to Canadians um, in, in a much more um, sort of persistent fashion, if you will, in terms of opening an office and really getting, getting to know, uh, you know the investors, whether they be institutional or on the uh, wealth side, boy, if, if we could do that, um, you know, there is a real opportunity here uh, to provide Canadians access to like globally diversified portfolios um, at, you know, uh, you know, sort of world-class private equity, if you will. And, uh, and so I sort of knew it would, it would work. <laughs> uh, and so we opened the office here in uh, 2019 and really started going and the team continues to scale. Um, in fact, we're looking for new office space if anyone's listening. <laughs> um, and um, I'm kind of happy to say that, uh, um, you know, vacancy rates are up in Toronto. So we're looking for larger space and building the team out as we continue to build both on the institutional side. Um, we have a number of clients here in Canada um, that are terrific to us. And then uh, as well on the wealth side, as as, uh, as I mentioned, we, you know, continue to see tremendous interest in the private markets, particularly on the wealth side, where Canadians tend to be a little bit behind, I think it's safe to say, in terms of accessing private equity and private credit. And so we're sort of leading the charge there, if, if you will. Yeah, and I, I would definitely concur with you on that from my uh, four years down in the US with Morgan Stanley I, and seeing their alternative platform and whatnot down there, uh, seeing the exposures versus what Canadian, Canadian investors typically are doing. So I think we're playing catch up, but I think you know when some, when some global players like Hamilton Lane come into the market, of which you're spearheading, you know, it's a very good sign. I think it's a it's a very good opportunity for people to really get educated um, and to learn more and to you know increase you know increase their exposure. I think one one survey I saw on the Canadian wealth uh, side of things was that only three percent of Canadian wealth uh, clients had any type of alternatives within the portfolio, which yeah. kind of shocking. Um, and I it's higher in the U.S. I think it's probably around. 10, 12% there, the last numbers I saw, but, you know, it's, you, you're definitely, you're definitely in a growth segment, uh, long-term, I think for sure. Uh, and I'm a big fan of that. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, just generally the private markets, uh, is, is a terrific place to invest for a number of reasons, um, that the Canadian pension plans figured out a long time ago. Uh, and they're, you know, Quite sophisticated, really globally known, especially the large, the large folks, um, sort of the top ten, are globally known in in the private markets. And you think to yourself, well, if the pension plans are figuring this out, um, you know, where, where's the, where's the rest of the capital? If your pension's growing with it, um, why 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 shouldn't we? Um, and you know, the attractiveness of the private markets, and the reason I you know is still going to continue to scale you know there's no there's no you know crystal ball there but the private markets is 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 likely to continue to scale and grow as a percentage of most folks allocation you know we have some for instance uh, institutions we're talking half of their portfolios moving towards the alternatives and so the canadian you know high high net worth credit investors are 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 are, are catching up but you know it's in fact it, the private markets have outperformed the public's 20 of the last 20 years in a row. It's public market equivalent anyway. Private credit, that's 19 of 20. And that outperformance isn't just the only reason, um, but that outperformance makes it quite attractive. Um, and it outperforms really for sort of three reasons. 
um, that make it attractive for, for folks to invest. Um, it outperforms because it, 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 it is, especially in certain sectors, there is an information advantage that some players have, as I already said, um, in, terms of, in terms of what you see uh, out in the private markets and information on the private markets, those that have information uh, cannot perform. Um, you think about it as an inefficient marketplace. So put it another put another yeah. way though. In essence, you're not having to deal with insider trading rules. Like <laughs> no, but candidly, yeah. that's true, right? Yep. Is you're these are private companies, private valuations. You're you're picking up smartly, you know, data data points, um, you know, discussions through the companies, competitors, etc. Um, at the end of the day, you're 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 not restricted by that. So that's that's a an information advantage is a real advantage. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's you, you, certain groups can take advantage of what is effectively an inefficient market, right, um, from that standpoint versus what you see in the public. But really, it boils down to the opportunity set in the private markets just dwarfs what we see in the public. Um, you know, 90 odd percent of companies with over $100 million of revenue or more are private. And, and you, you take, said another way, 95,000, um, there's globally, there's 95,000 private companies with annual revenue of $100 million or more. There's 10,000 publics. Hmm. And so not, now, not all of those companies, you know, want to be bought by private equity. Let's be real here. Um, yeah. But the opportunity set is still larger, uh, substantially larger. It's got to be. Yet private markets still raise in a given year, roughly... 2% of the world's MSCI. Hmm. And so it's still relatively small compared to the opportunity set you see out there. As hmm. well, if you think about going forward, public number of listed public companies is, is declining, as everybody knows, and it's concentrating. And so the investable universe on the private side is larger. That helps some of the outperformance. And you know the, that value creation shift from, from, uh, private, from public to private is illustrated by a few um, you know, interesting examples like Amazon, um, 10x private return, pretty famous, decent return, but about you know 2,000 x on the once it went public. Versus yes. um, Google, Facebook, Alibaba, all these companies in technology, yes, but most of the returns are generated on the on the on the private side. Gotcha. And then the last reason private outperform is, and you know, some some folks might disagree with me here, but um, we'll say it anyway. It's a better, better governance model to outperform. Um, in the buyout world, the investor owns the asset and the investor, um, the buyout firm, whatever it is, um, has much more levers that they can pull than you can on the public side. Uh, you know, you can merge the company, you can find some cost savings. The board is made up of the owners of the company. Um, and so the alignment there is, 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 you know, uh, perfect, I guess you'd say, uh, from that standpoint. So that better governance model also allows for some outperformance. Long way of saying that, you know, privates have outperformed over a long period of time. So, um, you know, it's an attractive asset class uh, to invest in, obviously, um, as it has outperformed. But also, uh, you know, it's it's relatively smoother ride on the way through. Yeah, so you touched, yeah. Upon, yeah, you touched upon a really good point, which yeah. I'm sure we'll have some comments on. So, sure. You know, you don't you don't have the mark to market, right? Uh, there's more of a smoothening process on on the prices. Um, I'm gonna bring up a you know because I know how knowledgeable you are. I'm gonna bring up a point around um, you know some current uh, chatter in or in the marketplace, given the fact that we're you know, January 23rd, 2023, and we're you know, one year into a bear market. You know, markets down. 20 to 33 percent, whether you know it's rallying a little bit, uh, obviously this year. But in the public markets, in the private markets, you guys are marking quarter to quarter, and you know the the ride tends to be uh, because of that uh, a lot smoother. Um, the criticism of that, and I'm sure you'll have a comment here, is around: well, is it mark to market, or, or sorry, is it mark to reality or not? Right. So, you know, there's lots of uh, uh, lots of debate, I think, going on right now around saying, well, you know, in the VC space, um, 
you know, there's a lot of VCs probably that are still going to be marking down some of their portfolios here this year as a lag, a lag effect from, you know, the technology markets kind of selling off like they have the last 15 months or so. So a commentary on that? Yeah, yeah, we get I get that question constantly, especially in a volatile market. Um, uh, and, you know, some folks that aren't investing in private equity will say, ah, I told you so, they're just making up the valuations. Um, and so I'm very, very used to the question, get it basically, I got to say, probably every meeting right now. Um, so there's a few things, there's a few things to unpack there. Uh, the first is, if you take the, yes, public markets are off and privates aren't, the run-up was a lot less in the privates as well. So the multiples that privates ended up paying at the peak were significantly less than the publics were valued at. So effectively they had less to fall. If you take, yeah. if you take the sort of a standard distribution of returns, effectively public was way out over its skis as a, using a Canadian term, uh, yeah. way out over its skis versus, versus private. So, you know, if you're a believer in a reversion to, reversion to mean in returns, uh, effectively the public had uh, further, to, um, further to come down. Uh, so that, that, that's an important point. Um, the other important point to remember is, and you know, it depends on the fund, and it depends on obviously what you're looking at. But you know, if I look at at our fund particularly, you know, returns on the private side are still, you know, the revenue is still double digits, EBITDA is still double digits, margins are still holding up, and so when you when you mark to market, yes, um, multiples are contracting. Um, as you as you look at the public market equivalents, um, you should expect multiples to. Um, flatten or contract a bit, uh, particularly as interest rates rise, but um, the underlying performance is still really strong. And so the way privates tend to value is yes, they're looking at public market equivalents, but like you said, they're looking at long-term potential and performance. Effectively, they're not moving on what Elon Musk tweeted last week. Yeah. Today. And, and, and so that, that's an inherent advantage. There's a bit of a lag there in the reporting um, from, the, from that standpoint that you can somewhat take advantage of a good example being in March of 2020 yep. when you saw um, the public do a big V effectively yep. and the privates just flipped over top of that as they had some opportunity. Um, now we have a, a little bit unique window into this. We do have a monthly valued fund um, that we're pulling forward valuations. And, and, um, and so we, we, you know, we're constantly marking to the publics and, what you can generally expect in the in the private versus the publics is for for the quant geeks out there the beta is about 0.4 so it moves directionally somewhat with the publics but a lot more muted um, yeah. so we'll call it a 40% correlation roughly if you take the whole private markets and and uh, and so as a result you're just not going to see those massive swings uh, that you do in the in the uh, on the public side yeah, so so we'll come back around to your evergreen fund because I think it's a yeah, sure. really smart, uh, brilliant structure. But before we get there, you know, a lot of people are, you know, maybe they've heard that being in private equity or venture capital, um, you should expect higher returns because there's an illiquidity premium. Yeah, uh, your evergreen fund is a unique structure, which again we'll get to shortly. But sure. traditionally, traditionally. Uh, one of the advantages that I've observed in practical sense with ultra high net worth clients, family offices, is that, you know, once you're in, um, you know, a traditional private equity or, or venture capital fund, you're in it for the long term, right? You're in it for yeah. 10 years, kind of likely minimum, and there's a J curve and everything else. So it. So the bad news is that, you know, in that type of structure, you're not liquid. The good news in that type of structure is that you've got investors that can't panic out so easily. <laughs> so, and candidly, you know, during different bear markets, um, that's actually been a savings grace for some investors that they didn't appreciate necessarily at the time. But, you know, as markets have you know, gone through bull and bear markets over time, the underlying portfolios have done exceptionally well. So I think maybe just comment about, you know, the pros and cons of, uh, from the investor's point of view, aside from the returns, I mean, obviously you're, you're aiming for, you know, mid single digit, the high single, or sorry, double digit returns. 
um, you know, 15 to 18%. But aside from that, what are some of the other structural benefits to say your evergreen fund? Oh, sure. I, on the evergreen side, just um, on, on that closed end fund side, if you will, um, you're right. Sometimes I suppose they can save people from making some poor decisions. Um, you know, a number of folks I talk to, I think, you know, overvalue the liquidity that the uh, publics have and, 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 and undervalue, I suppose, the illiquidity that, uh, that private equity um, and private credit and private real assets uh, yeah. sort of command from that standpoint. Um, and so these, these 10 year closed end funds um, is, is very, as, as your listeners would know, is, yeah. is sort of a typical um, a closed end fund. What we did is, and others have done it, um, we're not alone here. It's just, uh, I do think we're sort of leading the charge here on the evergreen, open-ended, whatever you want to call it side. Um, effectively, what we've managed to do is create an open-ended, um, for cre credit investors only, importantly, um, but it's an open-ended evergreen structure that accesses private equity. So it, it doesn't have you know, long-term lockups. That's one of them. Um, there's a couple of you know headaches, a few headaches, of, quote unquote, with the as best in the private markets, as you mentioned. One of them, 10 year lockup. Uh, the illiquidity there is is can can be can be difficult for 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 some. The other is, and you mentioned off the top, J curve, meaning um, you know capital is called before there's return from from investors in these closed end funds before there's actual returns. So there's a there's a J curve, and then the other somewhat problem with with building a private markets portfolio is ensuring you're able to build a diversified portfolio. And so uh, if you think about it, you know, I, if I want to build a you know, broadly diversified portfolio, I should find a manager that uh, uh, does healthcare. We've got to get a technology. We've got to get industrials. We're building a portfolio like you would on the public side, right? Um, we've got to get some US, European exposure, rest of the world. You, know, you, you get the point. You're sort of trying to build a portfolio, and that's a lot of managers to commit to. Now you've got all these underlying capital calls uh, that yeah. are coming for these. Um, and, so, and so all of that creates some headaches. And so we created a, a fund effectively that values monthly um, where you can come in with about a 10-day lag into a fully diversified, fully baked private equity portfolio um, mm. that allows folks with, with no sort of hard lockup uh, from that standpoint. And so it allow folks um, a little bit more optionality as well. Um, the J curve is, is busted um, because it's a baked in portfolio. You're not calling capital. There's, you know, underlying assets um, that's in that, in that fund. And, and they, you know, hopefully if we do our job, right, continue to grow. And so as a result, the, the J curve has gone. And, and so, you know, from that standpoint, uh, we launched that fund three years ago. Uh, it continues to, to scale and, 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 and we're raising, assets globally. Um, oh, and then the last thing about it, which is somewhat attractive, particularly on the Canadian side, is we're, we're talk, talking to accredited, Canadian accredited investors, is it's building a globally diversified portfolio. So yes, there's some investments in Canada, but uh, Thane, you probably run into this a lot when you look at Canadian portfolios. Yeah. Most folks tend to be a bit over-indexed to Canada. Um, yeah. And so home you ask... Home market buyers, right? Yeah, home market buyers, exactly. So you know, you're accessing private markets for, as I already mentioned, the outperformance, but also the diversification away from your publics. And so bringing a uh, portfolio to Canadians, um, accredited investor in Canadians that uh, um, you know, is, is sort of globally diversified is, is something that has, has proven to be, I think, really, really attractive. So yeah, it's great. It's, uh, it's nice to represent a you know, brand name in Hamilton Lane and in the, um, in the you know, high net worth space. So I'm with special guest, Mike Willat. Managing Director and Head of Hamilton Lane Canada. We're just going to go for a quick break now, so we'll be right back. Want to know how Canada's top entrepreneurs think about creating significant wealth? Join me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at CG Wealth Management and host of the Smart Wealth Podcast. Download today at iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe now. We're back with Mike Willat, Managing Director and Head of Hamilton Lane Canada. We're going to get right back into some questions. So bring us into the tent even deeper here. I, okay. I'm curious, you know, it's January 2023. Yeah. Um, interest rates have gone up dramatically over the last 18 months, particularly in 2023. Tech stocks have sold off. The yeah. work home stocks sold off. The 
broader markets have sold off. Even the bond market's been, you know, last year had a really, really bad year. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the in-house view, and this will, this will probably play out in your Evergreen Fund as to where, where, where's your organization seeing the best opportunities currently and maybe just looking out the next 12 to 24 months, not from a, let's say a return perspective necessarily, but more from, you know, where will be the best opportunities, if not today, possibly during a recessionary period, if that happens here the next 12, 24 months. Yeah, yeah. Boy, a lot's happened in 12 months. Eh? If we had had yep. this conversation yep. 12 months ago, or maybe 13 months ago, I guess, um, be a, quite a different one. Uh, yeah, interest rates rising, inflation, um, Russia, China, uh, recessions and the like. Um, you know, generally, the house view first um, is, is we think, and actually, one of your previous guests uh, would agree with me, I know, and Mr. Rosenberg, in terms of, uh, you know, the worst of the inflation is likely behind us. Um, the, uh, it seems like the, the Fed and the Bank of Canada, for that matter, have gotten a hold of that. Um, rates should remain elevated for a period of time. Now, remember, we're still well below historical averages here. Uh, if you take, if you look at the Fed rate going back over time, we're sort of in 2005 to nine land, um, but below, you know, historical averages on the interest rate side. Private markets are going to continue to rise just generally, as I've already said, now and into the future. Um, what we think over the next little while, volatility should will likely persist. It's likely a stock pickers game, including on the private side. Um, there is a substantial amount right now, particularly on the private side, of, of bid-ask spread, if you will, on assets. Yep. And some of that's pretty natural. Uh, if you think about it, if I'm on a private, I'm on a board of a private company and Hamilton Lane comes along and, and offers me a value of, uh, you know, call it 30% less than it was in January, um, mm-hmm. it's going to take a couple quarters of audit, audited reports on a new valuation, a new, uh, you know, structure, if you will, to, to, to accept that offer, um, yeah. uh, whether I'm, you know, I own the company or I'm on the board or whatever. So there's a, there's a natural slowdown that's happening, um, where we see opportunities, um, oh, sorry, just finished on the slowdown. I think, you know, uh, we think there's a mild recession likely, uh, we're probably already in it in the U S or already in it in the U S um, where most of the private markets are, uh, Europe's going to have a little bit tougher time, yeah. uh, inflation, um, really grabbing a hold there. UK is, is particularly, um, um, you know, going to struggle right now, given a Brexit and the like, and take the politics aside, just look at the economics of that. Um, but also obviously what's happening with Russia and, uh, energy prices and the like. So a bit of a dark winter there. Um, but as I look at the opportunity set where we see opportunities is still in where, and this is where private markets, um, I mean, we love to play in it um, in, in, terms of, in terms of sectors and, and thinking long-term, technology still has to drive um, a significant amount of long-term change. Um, we're at the beginning ends of some of it. If you look at what's happening with AI and the like, but really where we spend most of our time is in the buyout side and think mission-critical software um, is going to continue to um, you know, grab a, a bigger and bigger percentage of the economy. So we, we tend to look at information technology as a big sector, particularly, um, oh, and um, industrials generally um, are quite attractive right now as uh, prices have come off a little bit. It's a little bit of a, there's some value plays in there, um, but particularly think uh, you know, over, over medium to long-term, that's going to continue to grow. And then healthcare has a ton of tailwinds, as we mm. know, with the demographic yeah. shift. And so uh, those are, and then when you dive deep into those cycles, what do we look for? We look for market leaders in each of those industries, think positions one, two, and three on the private side, at least, that have the ability, particularly now, but just always um, have the ability to pass on price uh, inflation. And that, that um, power that comes with being a leader uh, allows some of that. And so that's a, those are sort of three sectors we are particularly bullish on. In general, if you're looking at geographies, um, U.S. is where we're spending a lot of our time. Western Europe, a little bit less, but still, still, still there. Um, as we, you know, see, um, you know, a bit of a softer landing, as I already said, in the U.S. What about Asia? 
Asia, very interesting. It's still relatively small on the private market side, right? But there is lots of opportunity there. We're a little wary of, of China and, and, and things happening there sort of short term. Um, and, and so, um, you know, you, you, we're treading lightly there, but there's, there's still lots of uh, opportunity there for sure. It's just, it's still about, call it 10% of the total private markets, right? Um, as a relatively small as uh, private markets are mostly developed world and, and um, you know, scaling, but it's still all at rough numbers. But if you take the total nav, you're sort of two thirds US, North America, um, you know, 20 odd percent uh, Europe and, and then Asia makes up most of the rest. Middle East Asia. Gotcha. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a conversation I was actually having today with a fellow uh, in out of Toronto. And mm -hmm. uh, he, he sold his high-tech business last year, pretty fortunately, uh, in Q1. And so um, you know, we were discussing kind of how to deploy a couple hundred million dollars worth of uh, proceeds. And it was interesting because I asked him, I said, you know, uh, were you happy with your sale price? And he says... Yes, I said. Um, but he says, you know, I probably left some left some on the table because of what was going on in his life at the time. I said, well, let, let me put it to you another way: Would you would you have bought your company for the value you were paid? Is <laughs> <says>, absolutely not. <laughs> so, so he was pretty pretty happy with the diversification. And you know, this is a pretty seasoned uh, veteran in the tech space, thirty plus years. And he, he said, but he goes. Um, you know, there's going to be opportunities again. There's always opportunities uh, to to invest in technology because at the end of the day, technology is able to scale businesses, right, and scale opportunity sets. So, uh, but he, he did. It was quite interesting because I think, um, yeah, well, he goes, yeah, I think there's going to be a really strong buy in in tech, both private and public, in the next 12 to 24 months. So he wasn't. He wasn't bullish right now. He was kind of saying, you know, I think it'll correct some more possibly, which is consistent with, I think, with what you're saying. But it was quite fascinating. I also went on to, you know, have a conversation with him. He says, yeah, you know, the, the challenge for uh, entrepreneurs that are selling businesses these days, you know, just coming out of COVID is, you know, do they have the energy to still kind of take it to the next level? Um, are they willing to, you know, uh, take a, a, a you know a haircut or price reduction from maybe what the, some of their peak values were you know 12 18 months ago um, so it was a really candid conversation but what I also uh, kind of warned him about was you know when you tend to sell high just thinking from a seller's point of view here when you tend to sell high on a you know a private equity business um, a lot of times these entrepreneurs kind of they're in a rush to deploy the capital right away again so they're they're, you know, they want to put the money to work. And this conversation, which I've had many, you know, hundreds of times in my career is basically, I was saying to him, look, if you sell high a business, you got to be very careful about buying high in the public markets, mm -hmm. right? When you deploy, right? Because cycle you know, tends to be amplified, like you were talking about. And in his case, I think your points uh, about public markets got way ahead of, out on their skis on, on valuations and he happened to be a beneficiary of selling um but he says yeah you know everybody's everybody's telling me to you know, deploy right away back into the cap you know public markets and so he says and i he says i like your approach about you know slow playing it and gradually deploying maybe over 24 months kind of thing um simply to you know try to take advantage of some of the public markets but your uh, your comments uh mike i think are, are really spot on so I think just to kind of wrap up the interview, I'd like I'd like to ask you one more uh, question. You know, you you've had a bird you know uh, bird seat uh, view of um, you know the industry overall from various roles and positions. So you know, what are maybe just give our viewers or listeners kind of what are some of the two or three things that you've learned like if you're you know if the organization is doing due diligence on a manager or or you know like what have you personally learned that you'd like to still share with our viewers and listeners today you know it's fine yeah it's a great question um 
one nice thing about being the vantage point of Hamilton Lane is sort of seeing the, the entire market, given yep. our subs and scales are mentioned. And so you sort of, we, we, I see the gamut of, of, of investors. Um, the one, I, I suppose if I had a lesson learned and you look back over, over you know, our, our history in Hamilton Lane and take a, take a look at the data, there's two things on the private side that, or at least just generally, that that folks, I guess, you have to either watch for or you can take advantage of. The first is there's a number of groups that try and sort of time the markets, if you will. Um, we there's often a tendency, particularly on the private side, to oh geez, um, there's a you know let's let's slow down, um, let's slow down allocation, um, let's let's not do this vintage year or whatever it is because. You know, we're we're over allocated or or you know boy it's really scary time to invest and the like that's probably the time to invest um trying to time the particularly on the private side and you look back over time it's it's a the 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 underlying pension plans endowment funds that perform the worst are the ones that turn off and on their allocation as they're, as they're building their portfolios and you know it's it's pretty classic but there's there's some fun data that that proves it out you just have to go back over time and you can see like um, the, the outperformance that we always talk about, the outperformance in private side versus the public is, is there over, as I said, 20 last 20 years of this public market equivalent, but that outperformance actually exacerbates in downturns. Um, meaning that outperformance is larger when things are going, so I guess sideways, whatever you want to call it in the public side. And the tendency is to, uh-oh, and uh oh, let's 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 dial back when when actually um, it, it, it's the opposite. Um, continue to uh, continue. Okay. And then the the other thing I can see, um, given my vantage point here, where um, you know if you look at overall returns and the like, it's it's um, and we've done this. And we're looking back on on our own clients is picking the right manager or whatever is really important. Don't get me wrong, but getting the uh, allocation correct in a portfolio yeah. is more important than picking winners. Um, mm -hmm. Avoid losers. Uh, that's a that's a big one. But uh, if you look back over time, it's getting the allocation right. So I think, by and large, what I've learned being here at Hamilton and looking at some of these most sophisticated, globally sophisticated investors um, as clients and the like, it's the ones that do the best. They don't time the markets, and they get their allocation right. So they're consistent and they're allocating. You got it. And and the mix and the mix, um, you know, most are sort of at least at the large institution side, call it 20, 30 percent into alternatives. And, and I say growing and that allocation has, has led to, um, I suppose, a no performance over the past 20 years. So I think that's that's what I, I see. And when I look at, you know, uh, Canadians generally and, and, and so obviously speaking more in generalities, but. Um, the allocation needs has some work to do, um, yeah. and uh, and I see a tendency with Canadians to think, let's let's try and let's try and find the perfect time, and um, you know as as Mario, our CEO, would, would has said at uh, speaking up here in Toronto on Monday at a conference, but uh, which I which I really liked. It's hey, private markets have outperformed twenty two of the last twenty two years in a row. You want to guess this is not the year. Maybe you could get that a crack, uh, but uh, but uh, you know that that's um, and try and, and try and wait or time it or whatever you want to say, but um, yeah. time in the market as they always say, you know. Yeah, well, actually, and that applies to you know the Morningstar and Delbar investor surveys that are done each year on uh, public markets. Um, public market investors over the last thirty years have averaged something like five percent of a year average when the underlying U.S. markets averaged, well, this is equity funds, has averaged around 9.5. So there, there's been an underperformance of around four, four and a half percent per annum. That's because of buying high, selling low. And that's in the public market. So I think, you know, again, the advantage of having, you know, a private markets portfolio that you're kind of more invested in um, and you, you kind of have to stay in more, um, is a is a major advantage in some ways for sure, um, and you know your evergreen fund uh, structure, I think has solved for that um, to to a significant level, and uh, you know 
hopefully people take uh, a longer term approach with that as well, even though you're giving them a monthly liquidity. Uh, yeah, it's still it's still you know this asset class is still relatively illiquid and it's still it's 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 it is still a long hold asset class. Yep. Um, yeah. And even on the evergreen close end side, you know we we usually say to our our folks, you know, think of this at least three to five plus years. That's sort of. Yep. That's what we're targeting in terms of companies we're putting into that portfolio. So it still should be in terms of you know time to exit. Um, and it, so it, it's still it's still it's still a long hold. It's just it's nice to not have to you know be formally locked up for you know ten plus years. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess what I'm kind of thinking of is what's been going on with some of the the you know large global uh, real estate funds right now and some of the credit funds that are being gated. Mm-hmm. So you're you're uh, you know, you've got a smart really smart well thought through structure i think in the evergreen funds which um it doesn't surprise me you're you're gathering significant interest and in, in assets into that well mike uh i i want to thank you for your time today I, again i know you're a very busy fellow and but uh really appreciate you sharing your um insights with our viewers and um so that's you know again thank you very much really appreciate your time well, thanks, Thane. It's uh, it's nice to be here, and uh, amongst uh, as well, it's a bit of an honor to be here amongst some esteemed other guests as well. So I appreciate that. Thanks. Very welcome. So that was Mike Willett, uh, MD and um, head of Hamilton Lane Canada, discussing the current private capital markets in Canada and globally. So that's uh, that's a wrap for today, January twenty third, two thousand twenty three. I'm Thane Stinner, and thank you very much for attending. Our next guest will be John Medved, who's the founder and CEO of Our Crowd, uh, a very uh, respected VC-related uh, portfolio manager based in Israel. He'll be actually a guest uh, zooming in from Israel, which is kind of cool. Um, I'm really looking forward to that. So please join us next month on the BNM Bloomberg Smart Wealth podcast. Thank you. The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp. and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Can Accord is a member of the CIPF.